and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today on the show, we welcome Institutional Portfolio Manager Mike Hickey. Mike and host Pamela Ritchie discuss a range of topics, including investing in Japan, the demand for AI, and the state of the consumer. Mike says inflation is coming down and notes that the sweet spot for equities is around 3% inflation. Revenues are nominal and says a little bit of inflation is good for corporate America. He says they are focused on growth and tend to be biased to sectors in tech, consumer space and healthcare. These areas, he says, have characteristics of high growth and are global businesses. They are very scalable and are capital light and not so affected by interest rates because of a massive balance sheet. Mike, who has worked alongside longtime investor Will Dana for many years, says in terms of value versus growth, they are always biased to growth. They are willing to pay for good names that might look expensive. He adds that they are still in early days of corporate America embracing AI, but if you're worried about a company being too expensive to invest in, you may miss out on some big moves. He expands on AI and says AI is a significant long-term trend, but at this moment, it is hard to find pure plays. Early stage companies in Silicon Valley seeking AI applications and private equity and funding for AI applications are expected to grow. This podcast was recorded on October 25th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. It's been a heady week, actually, already of earnings, particularly some of the big tech earnings, more to come. I wanted to ask you, sort of based on the the earnings story that's very much here and and present, how you look at the overall macro, like how ultimately does the inflation story fit in with what you're investing in today? We hear a lot about inflation and rates taking us into a recession. How does it actually work for you? Yeah, we've had a couple of earnings announcements last night were, were important from Alphabet and Microsoft. Maybe we can come back to that. And last week sure. we had a number of the big banks. I, th- I think big picture here, Pam, is inflation is coming down. We've seen evidence of that over the last six months or so. But even at inflation of two and a half, three, three and a half percent, equities can perform quite well. If you look at the numbers historically, there tends to be a a, a sweet spot of equity performance being strong when inflation is in and around 3%. A lot of that has to do with the fact that revenues are nominal. We can get that sort of extra push from a little bit of inflation. That tends to be pretty good for corporate America. And, you know, a lot of these executive teams have rationalized their cost structure over the last year or so coming out of COVID. And that is a code for increase in margins, which then results in increases in earnings and cash flow. So it tends to be, you know, a reasonably good environment with inflation at say two to three, three and a half percent. So when you and and Will Danoff sit down and sort of have a meeting of the minds and, and taking a look at the company fundamentals and the mandate ultimately for the fund, what 
what are you seeing right now? Give us a sense of sort of how the mandate fits with what is being offered up in the markets to you right now. Yeah, of course, we're we're looking for growth and we tend to be biased to sectors in the tech, healthcare, consumer space, to some degree communication services, which, which is where you find Netflix, which had very good numbers last week. The areas of, of and we'll see what Meta has to say tonight and Alphabet's uh, numbers were last night. These areas have characteristics of high growth. They are very scalable. They're capital light. They tend to be global in nature. These businesses tend to operate globally, which offers them very significant markets outside the United States and Canada to operate in. And, you know, ultimately, they don't need a lot of capital to run them. So uh, the interest rate environment is not all that important to uh, a company like Meta, who has a massive balance sheet and who can self-fund. They don't need to have access to the capital markets. So the rate backdrop is not all that important to these mega cap tech companies, which is why they've, one of the reasons I think is why they've performed so well recently. And specifically to your question about, you know, what are executives saying one of the benefits of Fidelity, of course, Pam, is our access to company managements. They're quite optimistic. I, I think it, there's a disconnect between what you hear from the, 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 those on the street that talk more macro, focus on the Fed and focus on things like inflation or geopolitical issues, which are certainly not to be dismissed. But corporate America has a way of adjusting to events, adjusting to you know, the pitches that are thrown at them and deliver earnings and cash flow. That's fascinating. That is absolutely fascinating. So, I mean, take us through, we did actually see, as you mentioned, financials. This earnings season is is always going to be important. It's it's also telegraphing what we're going into in the end of the year. What did you see in financials that you liked, disliked? I mean, tell us how you generally look at financials. I don't know if that fits with your mandate generally. So financials is a modest exposure in the portfolio. Um, most of the exposure of financials that we have is Berkshire, and Warren is running a much more diversified business. Um, this is a top 10 name. It's, in fact, number two in the portfolio. Um, I think people know this, but Warren has 40% of Berkshire and Apple. So it's not necessarily a financial law. The S&P people have to put it somewhere, so it's sort of legacy insurance business keeps it in the financials. Um, I would say, you know, the numbers last week out of the big banks, quote unquote, were sort of okay-ish. You know, they're struggling still from the yield curve being inverted. You know, they borrow short from the Fed and they lend long. And when the yield curve is inverted, that's a challenge for earnings. I would also say there's a big challenge around housing in the U.S. with rates. You know, 30-year mortgage is at 8%, back to sort of a mid-90s rate, which precludes a lot of folks from entering the housing market. So you don't see a lot of mortgage originations. On the on the plus side, credit's still pretty good. Um, you know, the consumer's in good shape. Um, corporate America's in good shape. So, but it's not a lot to get excited about in the space at this point in time. And just sort of flipping back to the management the, the, that you're speaking to in, in all different industries that you're interested in, is there how do they feel about the consumer? I mean, we've got we've got lots of GDP numbers that are about to come out. So there's also discussion about this right now. But is there a general optimism? Yeah, so this is like Mark Twain, right? The death of the consumer is greatly exaggerated. 
Yeah, the U.S. market is sort of, it's two-thirds to 70% consumer-based. Um, as long as an unemployment remains quite low here at, let's call it 3.5%, uh, and you have decent wage growth, uh, the consumer is going to hang in there. It's going to be very difficult to kill the consumer off, at least in the U.S. Uh, the low end, we're seeing some pressure there. These folks have sort of spent the COVID fiscal spending that the U.S. government put into the system. But the middle class, say the, you know, the 30th percentile to the, the top 1%, those folks are in very good shape. Again, largely because they have uh, jobs, and we've seen good numbers from, you know, the likes of Nike and and Starbucks and these types of companies. So, um, very difficult to put the consumer under pressure while unemployment is this low. So, I mean, just to the the forever discussion, I guess, of different styles of investing, the the growth versus value. Value investing has has its own time in the sun as well. But sometimes things are cheap for a reason. How, how do you look at that? Like, sort of make the case for so-called growth stocks, May, or is that what you're interested in right now? So this is an important point, and and philosophically, and, and we have all sorts of data that can demonstrate this: that cheap in and of itself, or value in and of itself, is not enough. You have to have some sort of fundamental inflection up in the earnings and cash flow, and that that can be a very powerful combination where you get what I would call a double whammy, where you have the multiple on the stock increasing along with the earnings and cash flow increasing at the same time. Those are very hard to find in the marketplace. There's a reason why stocks usually are cheap. It's because there's some you know, issue uh, fundamentally with the company. So we are always biased to growth. You know, I would call us Garpy, growth at a reasonable price. We're willing to pay up for good stories. Some names in the top 10 that have always looked expensive that we own, uh, Amazon, I will say them print tomorrow night, and NVIDIA, which is sort of probably the most important company in the world. We were with the CEO a few weeks ago in our Boston office. I think we're still in the early days of corporate America embracing AI and generative AI and machine learning. And those two stocks have always looked sort of expensive, you know, 20 five to say 40 times earnings. But, you know, if you, ha if you haven't owned them because of valuation, you've missed, you know, big moves. And it comes to sort of this idea of pricing power. I mean, there's certain, there's certain earnings reports that have had these astonishing illustrations of pricing power and, you know, and others where the consumer is getting fed up in certain areas. You can tell, you know, the coming out of the pandemic sort of let splurge has, has, fizzled in certain areas, but then there's the other story of those that are are clearly enduring stories. Right. And this is where you want to be in companies that we, we would call winner take most, where they are, I would qualify them as sort of monopoly, duopoly, or oligopolies, where you have sort of three or five companies controlling market share. And not only in the consumer space, but uh, also in enterprise corporate spending. Uh, and, and when you have oligopoly markets, you have pricing power barriers. There, there's no reason to lower prices. And in fact, there's probably reason to, to raise price. Um, and so that is something that we're always attracted to, scalable business models that are global in nature that are dominating particular markets. And tech is the sweet spot for that. That That is tried and true over 
decades looking back. You know, Microsoft back in the 90s was sort of fighting this antitrust issue and and now it's the Googles of the world and Amazons and, and Metas, et cetera. At certain times when we've spoken with yourself, perhaps spoken with Will, Japan actually is quite an interesting place to invest certain stories. I know you're gonna be you're gonna be company specific, but is it still just for an update? Yeah, we were actually talking about this this morning uh, in a meeting that um, you know the the Japanese government has you know essentially told companies that they need to increase their return on equity, be more shareholder friendly than they have in the past. So there's lots of different uh, opportunities in the Japanese market. I do want to you know caution that these are very small allocations in the portfolio. Our non-U.S. weight currently around five percent or so, and again we're more bias him in companies that it, it's not that relevant where they're located. We want to be involved in companies that are global in nature, that have global brands, global sales, distribution. Uh, and, you know, those, you know, one name that, you know, the automakers, the Toyotas of the world would be all of that, you know, they have more, way more sales outside of Japan than they do inside Japan, of course. So there's and lots of examples of that. Um, these are, again, companies operating globally is a very powerful tailwind. I mean, it sounds like what you're describing are big companies. But he, here's the question. Thoughts on small caps, mid cap? How how are you positioned across the cap spectrum? So Insights Class is, is a large cap portfolio. We do have a modest, what I would term modest amount of small mid at sort of 5 to 7%. The valuations there are much more attractive. But again, and, and put a number on that, the Russell 2000 is trading around 13, 14 times earnings. So it's a, pre, uh, a significant discount to the premium you see in the S&P. But there's, again, a reason for that. So in, in around a third of Russell 2000 companies actually are losing money. You just don't see that in the S&P. Almost everybody makes money in the S&P. The other issue that is sort of challenging the Russell 2000 company's small cap is the the need to refinance potentially. So again, coming back to the large cap space, cash in the balance sheet, but small cap companies may have to go to the market at some point in the next few years and refi debt, which you know is at a much higher rate. So there's a you know some cha challenges there potentially with balance sheets and the cap structure. But again, there's you know, we're always looking for those opportunities. Again, the beauty of the Fidelity Research Team is comprehensive coverage, up and down, small cap, mid cap, U.S., non-U.S. And we can leverage our, and this was very valuable, Pam, in the financial crisis, leverage our fixed income effort to get insight into the capital structure and the balance sheet. Let's swing back to AI, because I'm just so fascinated. I don't, I don't know if if there are opportunities in sort of the small and mid cap size for that, or if it's really just a big company story. It seems like there's a big debate between whether companies are going to build their own or use some version of, you know, one of the big companies' offerings and, and moderate it to, to what they need, what their needs are. What do you see on this? Is this a big company story providing AI for companies? Or where do you see the story at this stage? Yeah, and this this is the mega trend that again we're in the early days on. This is going to last throughout the decade. Um, you know, as we sort of talk to the, the folks in Silicon Valley um, right now, and first of all, it's it's hard to find pure plays in AI. 
you know, Microsoft's the lead dog probably right now, but they, of course, have a massive diversified business. AI is a small component of it right now. Um, there's a few hundred companies in Silicon Valley that are looking for funding or in the early stages of getting funding who are working on some sort of AI application for either the consumer or probably more valuable would be for corporate enterprise spending. And I'm sure there's lots of folks on the call who were in the markets in the mid-90s. You might recall in 95, we had the Netscape IPO, which really brought the internet to the masses globally. At the same time, we had Microsoft launch Microsoft, a package of Microsoft Office where you had Word, Excel, and PowerPoint sort of brought into corporate America. You might remember that, right? 95 is sort of this launching pad of this bubble that went up into the top in 99, 2000, right? Now, I'm not sure I would expect that, but I think at some point you're going to see a lot of really interesting applications that we haven't even dreamed of yet that are going to be, um, you know, funded and brought to market. Remember Alphabet, yeah. Google, the, that happened well after Netscape's IPO. Google was founded in 1998. So it was three or four years after, you know, the internet was really brought into the marketplace. So uh, Meta, you know, dated or back then was Facebook, you know, Zuck started that at Harvard in the early 2000s. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of things that will play out in the coming years. So, I mean, they were, in comparison to today, teeny weeny companies. So this, this kind of comes back to that discussion of your fidelity. You'll often say you're turning over rocks. I mean, you're looking at, but you are looking at the next generation of companies and it's, some will work and some won't. But just, just tell us a little bit about what you're looking at right now, or is it just too early? No, I, it's not too early. We have a private equity team, in fact, that is a couple of people on the ground in Silicon Valley and, and a, a few people here in Boston that source ideas um, that are looking to potentially fund ideas. You know, we have lots of growth funds here that in, invest in private equity. I would say that the you know, the IPO market has been very quiet. We had Arm get their deal done and a few others, but it's been very quiet. Um, and I think the issue is that these companies are just not mature enough. Um, and, and But we will yet. see that transpire in the next few years, very likely. I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you about that you've spoken about before is the issue with some of the companies that, that you've invested in and people will talk about it's a narrow, it's this breadth issue, isn't it? I mean, it's sort of this, in some ways, lack of options to go elsewhere, to look outside of that. I guess just speak to that. I mean, maybe it's not a troublesome thing, but maybe it is. I mean, how, how do you look at that? You just pile into it and don't worry about it? Or what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's been a challenging market for most managers. I mean, mostly because we have had big positions in these names. Um, you can just look at the top 10 and and it's a who's who of the, whatever you call them, Magnificent Seven or Fang, whatever you want to call them. I think, you know, you're going to see, you know, the market broaden out eventually. That This tends to transpire where you have a lot of volatility and you have concern about recession. And, you know, people go to sort of flight to safety and flight to safety is these big companies that have defensible business models and great balance sheets um, that can weather the storm. We've seen this in past cycles. Um, it's to us, it's not all that worrisome. And, and we are looking for ideas. 
up and down the capitalization. Love to own more names down in the small mid cap space. Frankly, Pam, it's tough to find companies that are executing as well as some of these big cap tech names. They just yeah. are incredible business models. Are the are the big cap names looking to gobble up the ideas? I mean, that that's always an option. They've certainly done lots of it in the past. Is, I mean, maybe that's still a good investment thesis for you because if they get taken out at a higher price, that's a good thing. Does that happen sometimes? Uh, this happens quite often, and they tend to be, you know, the experts in their space. You know, I, I go back to the Meta buy of Instagram ten years ago for a billion dollars, and you know, as a standalone business, it, it it is multiples of what they paid for it now. And so it is a, we're competing with them and they're, they're competing with the, the pure venture capital firms. So there's a lot of competition for good ideas. I don't think we lack for capital funding good ideas. Fund, that will always be something that the U.S. I think can execute on. And, you know, the U.S. and even with um, you know some great tech companies in Canada, we're lucky to live here. We have you know these companies that operate globally. You know, if you look at Europe, they generally don't have a lot of tech exposure. You know, they tend to be more consumer oriented or healthcare oriented. So it's it's really quite quite a benefit for us to have these homegrown companies. And I mean, is that is that just the ability with with various policy, even in you know, even if you want to call it industrial policy, just to allow the innovation to take its its turns and twists, and not it's lots of regulations, but they don't sort of regulate it out of business, which which some will argue is is more that happens more often in Europe, and it sort of squashes things. I think we've seen evidence of that. I think also to consider is that tech tends to be what I would term a natural monopoly, like there are these network effects. Facebook's a good example on Instagram. You know, it doesn't work if there's a hundred different Instagrams. Everybody sort of has to be on the platform. You know, Microsoft with email, you know, you're not going to use, we always use this example of Alphabet and we've owned Alphabet since the IPO, IPO back in 04, so almost 20 years now. And you might recall back then, there were a lot of different search engines. There was Yahoo, there was Alta Vista. There was this thing called Ask Jeeves, which is natural search language. There was a number of search engines. It was not clear that Google was going to be the winner. You know, as the research and the quarters unfolded and we continued to do research, it became very clear that Google was going to be the winner. They had the best engineers and that search engine continued to gain, you know, steam through the years. And now they have something around 90% market share. So where is the next one right now? <laughs> yeah, and that's what we're doing here every day. We're trying to find those ideas. And we have to believe that you, Fidelity, will probably get there faster than we will. <laughs> You'll get close. Uh, that's why you're paying now. the management fees, and that's why we're in business. We have yes. an army of analysts that are always looking for these, these opportunities. And I think historically we've done a reasonably good job of, of, of in fact, doing that. I'll just come back to sort of the mega themes in technology. We spoke about AI, but are you, I don't know, are you surprised at how much there is still this transition to the cloud? I mean, is there just, how long are those legs, for instance? By some measures where the workloads in the cloud are still in the sort of 20% or so, I have to measure it. If you look at corporate America, there's still a lot of potential capital spending that has to go into the cloud. It's just a better 
uh, way to do business, you know, fidelity. We don't want to have all of these software engineers and network engineers running around, running our own software. We can just give it to Amazon and they right. can do it, you know, for, for an ongoing fee and the software gets upgraded automatically, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a better business model, better mousetrap. So I think we still have a ways to go. What are some of the questions either that Will, yourself, also asking of management teams in this environment? Are they any different to, you know, some of the questions you're asking last year, Thrasis? We're in a very different part of the cycle in terms of the rate rate, rate rising cycle. Yeah, well, I, I hate to go back to AI, but the first question in every meeting is, what are you doing with AI? How is it impacting your business? You know, for example, is it, if you're in the customer service business and some companies have, you know, huge spend on customer or client service, whether it's phone reps or what have you, how are you employing that? And and again, this is sort of looking out a, a few years. It's not going to be overnight, but that can have big positive implications for margins. You know, you also, we're also interested back to this issue of capital structure and rates is how much, and we have these numbers, we don't necessarily have to ask this question, but you know, are you concerned about having to refinance debt at yeah. higher rates? And what does that mean to the bottom line? So, the, you know, a lot of these things are evergreen to some to some degree, you know, the, through cycles. Yeah, fascinating. Oh, it's so interesting. I'd love to be a fly on the wall in those conversations. Well, thank you for bringing us almost to that state and sharing uh, so much with us. Mike Kiki, thanks for joining us here today on Fidelity Connects. Thank you, Pam. Great to see you. Thanks for joining us here today. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.